What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, we're doing another Q&A style podcast episode. So as always, thank you again to everybody who asked questions this past week on my Instagram. I answered a lot of these already. Just wanted to, again, dive into a a handful of them on here and elaborate a little bit more on some of them because we had some good ones this week. The first question is, do you subscribe to the idea that our cravings can tell us what we need? And this is honestly a kind of a tough question to to answer here Um, because a lot of times these questions get asked in like a yes or no sense. And I, I just don't think it's as simple as saying yes to this or straight up no to this because there's so many depending variables that go into cravings and how you feel and how we perceive food and how hungry we are um, among a list of a ton of other things that just can influence the the whole idea that we are craving something at the end of the day or at certain points of the day. Now, what I think uh, this lovely person is asking, because we uh, talked a little bit more about this question in uh, the DMs a little bit afterwards, um, but sometimes there's this misconception out there that, and I hate to say misconception because I do think it maybe can be true at a, at a lower level, um, but there's this idea that um, uh, sometimes cravings are a way that your body is asking for certain nutrients. This is something that you might hear in the, in the health space a little bit. Um, but it's not always a super straightforward connection. Um, sometimes, yes, like your body has a nutritional deficiency, like that can influence like some of your cravings, what your body might be asking for. You know, if, if you have a food uh, habitually in your diet that has some of those foods, but that's just, it's not something that we see in modern day as much. Um, maybe I would, I would say that this is maybe more likely to people, um, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, when we really didn't know a whole lot about what's in our foods, we're trying new foods. Like even way back when, when people were settling into, to this country and, um, you know, this whole quest to like, uh, cover as much land and discover all the land way back when, um, you know, we saw things like, and we have uh, reported things of things like scurvy, which is, uh, uh, vitamin C deficiency. And uh, we have these, uh, uh, tales of people like sucking on lemons and, and oranges or something and, and their scurvy or their diseases are curing because they had a gnarly nutrient uh, deficiency. And we just really don't see that. Like we just don't live in a food environment and most people um, aren't chronically deprived of things uh, from vitamin C. And I think we owe a lot of credit as much as people don't want to do that sometimes to even like the food industry sometimes like uh, there's a lot of policies in place even though people aren't a big fan of it and and of course we can point out all the flaws and the things that aren't good from it but man things like iron and you know some of these other micronutrients and you know uh, protein sometimes or fiber like there's a lot of companies and things that are fortifying their products with different nutrients because if we look at the data and we look at the history like people get low base baseline amounts of a lot of these nutrients. So things like uh, cereals, for an example, um, if you look on their ingredients list, man, there's like a list of 20 different vitamins and minerals that are added to them a lot of times for kids too, but also for adults and and people who eat those foods fairly often. Um, You'll see nutrients added back into things like oats and other, um, um, you know, other grains products as well after there's the processing tends to strip some of those nutrients too, but hey, long story short, uh, I to answer this question somewhat with a yes or no question, it's like I don't always subscribe to the idea that your body 
physiologically is telling you that it's missing a particular nutrient. Um, you know, another example that comes to mind that, you know, may I've seen honestly, like some people with anemia or whatever, um, um, you know, sometimes blood conditions or not getting enough, um, you know, meat or vegetarian. Sometimes like I just am craving a piece of steak. Like maybe sometimes that is an indication that they are low in iron or some of these other, uh, you know, B vitamins or some of these, uh, um, um, sources of protein that have a ton or a complexity of, of nutrients. And those people aren't getting those nutrients consistently anymore compared to what they were. Um, maybe once they went vegetarian or went vegan and yeah, like you craving a steak, like maybe makes sense in my mind in that scenario. Even some people with like chocolate at the end of the night, like chocolate, depending on the kind, like can be really, Oh man, it can be really high in magnesium. One of those nutrients that, you know, people uh, might not get enough of in their normal, especially the standard Western diet that we are kind of immersed in today. But like a craving chocolate at the end of the night could be an indication of that. I'm not discrediting that. And I, I don't think that that is uh, completely out of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. And we'd be, uh, yeah, we'd be ignorant to just think that that is the only way that our, our body asked for food. Because people at the end of the day that man, they, they experience cravings for a ton of different reasons. And in my experience and just working with people, it's usually a combination of things, right? It's not just one specific thing, although it can be in certain contexts of sure, but, um, it comes down to your maybe genetics, uh, your biology, uh, your psychology, your, uh, environment that you live in your stress, obviously, like there's just a lot of different inputs that can go into people thinking or reaching for food in different scenarios. Um, we talked about the nutrient deficiencies being one of them potentially. Um, I, I, again, don't think that that's really the, the, uh, main, you know, root of all of this by any means. Um, but if we look at women, especially too, like hormonal changes, especially that happen over the course of the month through the different parts of their cycle, um, fluctuation in hormones could be a huge thing, especially again, during the menstrual cycle, but people who are pregnant, like, um, man, there's people out there and people, uh, that are in my life that, you know, <laughs> tell me their most random cravings that they have throughout the day when, uh, they're in their first or second trimester, third trimester. And like, it's just comical to me. It's like, dude, I've never. I never know she liked eating that and she's craving like X, Y, and Z all the time. It's just, it makes me laugh because, uh, man, the body is, is a crazy thing. And when you bring a kid into this world and you grow, you know, a baby inside your body, like there's a lot of things that happen that can influence your cravings. Um, again, that's an extreme example, not something everybody is going through all the time. Also things like menopause can influence your food cravings. Um, but in general, I just think there's so many uh, things happening within the body, especially hormonally, that can lead to people resorting to food or feeling hungry. Um, and, and that, to me, is something that I don't think we can ignore, especially when we're having this conversation around cravings and what triggers them. Um, another thing that comes to mind is different like emotional or psychological factors, things like stress, anxiety, um, people being born, uh, bored, sorry, just like different types of emotions that can happen really from hour to hour if you look over the totality of your day. And what is like one of the most comfortable things for people to revert to when they are feeling a lot of those different emotions? Mostly it's food, you know, they have access to it. Usually it's readily available. And if it's not, it can be if you want it to. And a lot of times people seek out um, food to cope with their emotions and just you know, if they're having a bad day, like that is one thing that can give them pleasure that day. 
I'm not going to go into a, a rabbit hole on how to fix this or um, talk about you know, uh, some strategies because we did a whole episode on that damn near about three episodes ago with uh, Kim Schlag. It was incredible. I really recommend you going back to that episode. If you struggle with emotional eating, ton of good value in there that you can uh, listen back on and um, have some action points from there, but just bringing up the emotional side of things. Cause that is very true as well. Um, we also have to acknowledge that like how you were raised and like habitual cravings that you've always had your whole life. Um, you know, whether it's been for a year or since you were 12 years old, like if someone's used to having a dessert after dinner and that was started when they were a kid, like you bet your ass you can develop this habitual craving for dessert after every single dinner that you have, especially as you get into your adulthood. So, um, just the act of you making a habit out of something can also lead to cravings going forward in the future. Um, we can't ignore the whole, uh, we mentioned the environment side of things, social side of things. It's Christmas time. It's the holiday season. Man, uh, great time of the year, but usually a very stressful time of the year, especially um, for my caregivers, parents, you know, people who take on a lot of responsibility to host and cook food for people and to um, financially spend on people and to get people together and um, all my people pleasers out there it's just a hard time of the year because they want everything to be perfect and you know you have some of these people that man it's a great time of the year but it just adds 10x the amount of stress um, than it does pleasure in certain occasions and and not everybody is going to admit that but I know a lot of people can feel that um, but I just use that as an example because we have Christmas like three days from now, you know, and being surrounded by people who maybe you don't see super often or family members that piss you off or um, being at work parties. Like there's a lot of social influences that can play a role in your food cravings and what you want. Even being exposed and seeing or smelling certain foods. Um, if you watch TV for fucking 20 minutes, you will have 10 food commercials like on your screen. Um, there's just a lot of things visually um, and things that we smell and things that we hear about and things that are talking about. And, and again, going back to habits and routines, like this time of the year, you always have these special cookies or this eggnog or whatever it might be. And like, um, before you know it, like you're craving those things this time of the year. So we can't ignore that. Um, yeah, I think, we could talk about this for a long time. Another one that, uh, the one that, one that comes to mind, I think I answered it on the Q and a is, uh, the genetic component to this as well. Like sometimes, um, some, I say sometimes there's a lot of people out there that have baseline higher, uh, you know, hunger signaling throughout the course of the day, um, compared to their satiety signaling. So let's say somebody, uh, there are twins, right? And one of those twins has five or 10% higher baseline hunger throughout the course of the day, no matter when they eat, no matter what they eat. Um, feelings of satiation, like they just get hungrier quicker after meals. If you followed those same exact twins and maybe the other one has negative 5% baseline hunger levels, maybe they're not as hungry all the time, but you, you see that 10, 15, 20% difference between the two. You bet your ass that that person who is 20% higher, you know, uh, than their, than their twin who has, you know, more hunger throughout the day, more thoughts around food throughout the day, who doesn't get full as quickly as their other, um, their brother or sister, 
over a five-year stretch, 10-year stretch, over a lifetime, you bet your ass that that person has a greater likelihood of eating more, of gaining more weight, of having a harder time controlling cravings and, and controlling themselves around food because it's constantly um, higher within their day-to-day regimen than maybe compared to somebody who doesn't experience that. But there's a lot of biological factors that can go into this. And then from just like other nutrition, lifestyle stuff, lack of sleep like chronically or even in a short-term period can make you hungry or crave different things. Um, even dietary patterns and restrictions that people have placed on themselves, like what is their dieting history? Have, have you always been the person that has cut back on XYZ foods when you are intentionally being quote unquote good and then when you're not there or you don't hit your goal and you're going back on the other end of the spectrum and you eat all of those things and you haven't had that whatever food for three months or three weeks or even three days for some people and you find yourself constantly thinking about that, like that 100% can trigger some of these cravings because anything that we put on a pedestal, anything that we, that we say we can't have, what do you think we think about, right? Like we want that shit more. That's all we think about. Um, it's same thing with like the, uh, the, uh, the car analogy. It's like, Hey, you're looking for a new car and you found a car in the right color. And all of a sudden you see 10 of those cars within a week after you didn't buy that car. And that's all you're thinking about. So yeah, dietary patterns, you know, your history of yo-yo dieting, all these things can kind of play into, um, just this whole cravings conversation. And again, circling back to the original conversation, I just don't know if this is, um, I just don't think that this is your body telling you what you need, what nutrients you need. It's, uh, as you could tell, it's very multifactorial. And I think cravings are just something that, man, people will experience in their own way. And uh, just playing detective and exploring a little bit could be something that can help you maybe get through that and identify why you're craving something all the time. So anyway, that was, uh, as always a long response to that first question, but I think it was a really good one. So I wanted to touch on that again. Next question here is what, sorry, where does fat go when you burn it off or lose it? So this is a great question. Uh, most people, I, presume, um, cause I've thought this at one point too, is like when you burn fat, you're using that fat cell and it's giving you a bunch of energy and it's just like disappearing within the body. Um, very simple way of putting that, but that's kind of this perception like, oh yeah, where does fat go? Does it just like disappear? Well, it doesn't disappear. There's a lot of mechanisms and things that carry out that, um, that burning of the fat. And really what does happen is you, convert the uh the fat itself if you imagine all the fat that you have in your fat cells all these molecules they have this process of chemical reactions but it gets rid of fat by converting it into carbon dioxide and then water the carbon dioxide is something that we exhale through our lungs when we're breathing um, and then the water itself is eliminated through all the other ways that we excrete water throughout our body um urinating sweating um, even defecating, um, believe it or not crying, you know, like all these bodily fluids that we have, we can expend or, uh, expel that fat and those byproducts of fat, um, metabolism into the form of liquid through all the different things that we uh, do to get rid of water throughout our body. Um, but there's again, this misconception that fat is just converted into energy, but 
the energy that's actually stored in those fat molecules is what's released during these, you know, cascade of reactions that happen. And it's the breakdown of fats that really just goes through a series of these chemical reactions. And it's the byproducts of that, the carbon dioxide and the water is the things that your body expels from the body when you start to lose fat. And if you're in a deficit for a period of time and, um, you know, you're slowly losing body weight. So that is, I think the extent that I want to, to, talk about on that to be honest i couldn't tell you all the mechanisms and how exactly everything happens without looking at my old textbooks but i think the only thing that you need to know is that you'll exhale out the carbon dioxide and then all the uh the water that you create from that is going to be lost as sweat and urine mostly okay cool really good question hopefully that makes sense next question thoughts on taking creatine and vitamins at night instead of the morning since i pee all day to be honest, this really doesn't matter a whole lot. I, do, I don't want people to stress about when they're taking their vitamins. Um, take it whenever you want. You're going to pee out the excess, especially of those vitamins and minerals that you get from your multivitamin. You're going to pee out the excess requirements that you know your body doesn't need regardless, whether that's the next morning if you take them at night or in the middle of the night if you drink water before bed and you go up and you go to pee four hours later. Or if you take those vitamins first thing in the morning with breakfast and you're drinking water throughout the day and you pee a couple hours later, like all of those excess um, nutrients and things that your body didn't use or didn't need is going to be excreted. That's why you see just like these mega doses of these supplements. A lot of them are water soluble vitamins. So they're really, they're just not toxic to our body in high amounts, um, you know, in, in the other side of things, there's fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K that you'll see on these multivitamins and things. They might not be as high um, because it's a little high or a little easier to get higher amounts of those and have your body, you know, those get stored in, um, in, in the fat in your body and they aren't excreted out with water. So there is a possibility for you to t- have too much of that and your body absorbs that and you have a toxicity of those nutrients. Nobody is really walking around having too many, uh, <laughs> having too much vitamin D in their body though. Like it's just not something that we see a whole lot. So I don't want you to worry about that. But I bring that up is because, you know, a lot of the B vitamins, the vitamin C, uh, all the minerals that you'll see on, on those multivitamins that people take, there's going to be a hundred, 200, sometimes a thousand percent, um, of your, you know, dietary intake of that and that's fine. It's it's really okay. But I just I don't want you to think that you're going to get some magical benefit by taking it more in the evening and having those be put to work more so than maybe when you take it first thing in the morning. Especially with creatine. Creatine is not something that you take it and your body uses it instantly. You taking creatine every day essentially is helping you uh, maintain your body's creatine stores within the body, within the muscle cells. And taking that three to five grams per day has just been proven to maintain and top off those creatine stores. So you could take that in the in the morning. You could take it at night. You could take it with your um, post workout drink. As long as you're taking it once a day, that does not matter at all. Okay. So, long story short, I just I don't want you thinking about this too much. 
I'd rather have you create a routine around taking these things. If you have, you know, if you're taking um, vitamins and uh, fish oil and your vitamin D and your creatine, like create a routine that you can remember that you can adhere to that, you know, becomes part of the routine. And that is going to be the best thing. If that means you taking it at night before you go to bed or after dinner, great. If that means first thing in the morning, you're eating a little something and you're taking your vitamins alongside that while drinking 24 ounces of water. And that's what, uh, allows you to be more adherent to that plan. I love that for you too. Just do it consistently in whatever way you can. And that's where you're going to get the most benefit from this is doing it consistently instead of taking it a particular time throughout the course of the day. Great. Can you list a general guide for cutting at the beginning of the year? I think January, February too is just, uh, maybe, maybe in addition to like, I don't know, uh, April or May is just like the world's, uh, um, cutting holidays. Uh, when I say cutting, I mean like going into a fat loss phase, trying to intentionally lose weight. Um, obviously new year's resolutions, a lot of, uh, a lot of people, uh, just making it through November, December and, uh, feeling motivated to like get their health in check. Uh, maybe they do a dry January. They want to go into a fat loss phase. Like honestly, if, if that works for you and, and you can, um, you know, schedule out a time frame, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and, and you can stick to that. And January is the best time of the year for you to do that. Fuck. I love that for you. I, I just, I appreciate the fact that you're thinking about those kinds of things. Now, when it comes to setting up your deficit, when you're going into a fat loss phase, a few things come to mind and you ask, can you list a general guide? I'm going to list, a, um, list out a, um, a handful of things that you will likely need to have in check for you to see, um, substantial or, you know, meaningful fat loss over the time frame that you are trying to cut. <clears throat> One of them is going to be getting yourself into a calorie deficit, which means anywhere from like 300 to 600, even 700 calories below your maintenance range. 500 to 700 is fairly aggressive. So keep that in mind. Okay. But going 300 to 500 to 700 calories below your maintenance calorie range will put you in a calorie deficit. The other thing would be eating at least or more than 0.7 or 0.8 grams per pound of um, um, protein per day. And what I would also include in this is spacing that out over maybe three to five different feedings throughout the course of the day. Now, it's not mandatory, all my uh, mandatory, all my intermittent fasters and be like, what the fuck, dude? Um, which if we look at things as a totality, man, if you have your protein in check, you get it consistently and you do that within an eight hour feeding window, um, from 12 to 6 PM at night or 8 PM at night, and that works for you and you get enough protein in throughout the course of the day. That's great. I'll take that. Um, we see very similar progress in re or, um, um, yeah, progress in research when we look at time restricted feeding compared to feeding throughout the course of the day. Um, as long as you are getting your protein, your minimum amount of protein requirements throughout the course of the day, you are getting most of the benefit from that. I bring up the conversation of spacing out over three to five feedings per day because one, I think from an adherence standpoint, it might be easier, um, at least in my experience and what I've seen working with clients, it's easier for people to have three or four feedings throughout the course of the day. When I say feeding, like it, it could be a protein shake and a snack after a workout. It doesn't have to be a full on five-star meal, right? Um, three meals, a snack, two snacks, like 
having protein, 20 to 30 or 40 grams of protein at every feeding, it is more likely for somebody to hit their protein goal at the end of the day compared to trying to fit all of their protein into one or two feedings in, let's say, a six or eight hour fasting window for comparing it to intermittent fasting. But from an adherence standpoint, I just see that you're more likely to execute on that. So that's why I bring that up. But we also see um, if we space protein feedings out throughout the course of the day and we're stimulating muscle protein synthesis and we're getting enough protein to stimulate that over two, three hours at a time throughout the course of the day, that has a smaller, but you know, but can be maybe meaningful uh, impact on your muscle retention, on muscle building and uh, just having that spaced out throughout the course of the day would be slightly better than you just doing it in one or two meals throughout the course of the day and having, you know, 80 grams of protein in one and two feedings, um, compared to spacing that over three or four. So side tangent on that, but again, 0.7 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight. So just multiply your body weight by 0.7 or 0.8. I say, or, there's a few different factors, what your starting weight is, what your lean body mass is, how much weight you have to lose, what your goal weight is. There's there's different calculations, but I think in general, if you multiply your body weight by 0.7, it could give you a good ballpark to shoot for, okay? Next would be your activity, getting in eight to 10,000 steps per day uh, on average throughout the course of the week. Um, that doesn't, you don't have to get 10,000 steps every day. If you work a pretty sedentary job and you're more active on the weekends or can, you know, go on extra walks a few days a week and you're more locked down, tied to a computer for 12 hours a day, Monday to Wednesday, like as long as your weekly averages equal out to 8,000 to 10,000 steps per day, we're good. That could look like, you know, um, uh, 4,000 steps a couple days, and then you have 12 to 15,000 steps on the other days, and that's balancing out to this eight or 9,000 steps um, on average throughout the course of the week. That's fine, but make sure you're getting at least 8,000 steps per day, finding ways to get those in. Next thing I would always emphasize is resistance training. Ideally, three times a week, four times a week would be um, another good number if it's feasible. I don't think people need to go much higher than that. Um, and if you are somebody that's doing more hit classes or, you know, the Orange Theories or the F45s or the Fit Body Boot Camps and you're doing that one or two days a week, great. Um, adding another gym day, a home workout day where you're, you know, intentionally lifting weights. Even when you're in those classes, thinking about lifting heavier, taking some small breaks in between um, the sets that you're doing, even though I know it's like a do as much work as you can within a 45 minute stretch is kind of how those classes are designed, but uh, designed and not to say that that can't work for you, but I just think that there is, um, a lot more benefit to you intentionally going and, uh, you know, doing like, I, I don't want to like say you have to be on a perfect training regimen. Um, but two days a week, three days a week of you lifting weights is going to be something that I really want you to think about incorporating instead of just trying to, to lose fat by doing, um, a calorie deficit alone and only changing things with your nutrition. Most people don't tend to do that. Um, but man, a lot of people think that, oh, I'm just going to eat less and not work out and that's going to get me to where I want to be. When in reality, we got to keep as much muscle as possible, right? A lot of people asking these questions are in the mindset of how can I lose fat instead of total weight, even though uh, those things are not interchangeable. That's usually what people want. Like you losing 20 pounds, you know, eight pounds of muscle, 12 pounds of fat is very different than you losing two pounds of muscle and 18 pounds of fat. Um, 
And how we do that is we eat enough protein, we resistance train, and we keep sending these uh, uh, stimulus to our muscles, to our body saying like, hey, we need these, okay? And resistance training and lifting helps us do that. Um, The last thing I would say is like a rate of fat loss that I would look for as you start to go into your cut, 0.5% up to 1% of your body weight, your total body weight per week could be a number that you could look for. 1% 1% is extremely fast, okay? So if you're somebody who's sitting here at 200 pounds and you multiply that by um, 0.5%, uh, that's about one pound a week. That's phenomenal, okay? Don't let these fucking magazines and uh, fitness influencers tell you that you need to lose 30 pounds in 30 days. Like we're not out here trying to lose a pound a day. It's just not gonna happen and you can do that, but it's not gonna be fat. Um, and it's not going to be done in a way that you're going to be able to keep that off long term, which is really what we're getting after here. So um, do the calculations for yourself. But if you're losing 0.5 to 1% of your total body weight per week as you're tracking these things or on average, that is phenomenal. Okay. And I don't want, I don't want the other things that you will see this time of the year clad your perspective of what it actually looks like to lose fat at a good rate. Okay. Now I list all of these things out. Like those are the man, those are the what questions, right? Like those are the, hey, what what calories, what workouts, what steps, like what, uh, what protein should I be shooting for? All questions that I think are important that need to be answered as well. And to be honest, all things that you could find elsewhere. You don't have to get those from me or another health coach. Like those are things you probably know or have seen before. Where people get caught up here in, um, this, is, <laughs> this is where I wanna go with this uh conversation here. I want to give you another little takeaway before you go into a fat loss here, but it, I, I want people to start asking like the how questions, like how do I, you know, how do I get to a deficit? How do I maintain a deficit? How do I become more adherent? Especially as we navigate through, um, you know, the first part of the year, maybe there's more social events still that you have lingering after new year's Eve. You know, how am I going to, uh, you know, be able to get 10,000 steps a day when I'm only getting 6,000 right now? Like, Asking the how questions is how you're actually going to execute on the what questions that you're constantly asking for, okay? And I, I don't want to sit up here and sound like I'm uh, being a dick right now. I'm just, I'm really trying to be productive and, and trying to give people um, a mindset of like, okay, there's all these things that we know and that, you know, that we're supposed to do, but it's the how questions that are going to be the answer and the ticket to you being adherent being successful, and then also maintaining that progress that you see long-term because there's somewhat of an identity change that also needs to happen along this process. And when you ask those how questions more, man, that's when you start to see progress and success uh, add up a little bit more. That's honestly what I think hiring a coach is great for as well. Obviously giving you the what questions like, hey, here are the numbers. Here's what we could start with. Here's the adjustments we need to make week to week. Um, Having some of those things done for you and knowing that you are doing those things is great. Um, but again, it's, it, I think it helps, you know, bouncing ideas off of somebody else, even if it's your spouse or partner or your friend that works out a lot, like just being curious and asking those how questions of like, okay, how can I execute on this? And how can I do that consistently over time um, in a way that I don't fucking hate? And, and those are going to be really the, uh, the things that get you to where you want to be and, and, and make that last long-term, which is really what we're out here for. Now, the thing that I would recommend to somebody like yourself who is planning a cut here at the beginning of the year is 
again, really looking at the totality of all these things and coming up with somewhat of like a, a checklist of things that you are doing before you decide to cut your calories. Um, one, because it's going to get you in some different habits and routines and, and help you uh, kind of uh, create a plan that is going to be easier for you to cut you know, 300 or 500 calories on and stick to those things. Um, all things that you kind of need in check before you can do that and do that successfully. But also these are things that you are going to lean back on after you come out of a deficit, after you come out of your fat loss phase, habits and routines that you are going to be doing um, to maintain that success long-term. Obviously there's going to be maybe adjustments in calories and activity levels and whatever it is when you come out of a deficit, you don't have to do those things to maintain your progress forever. But if we look at a list of things that I would emphasize that are really important, we've kind of already alluded to some of them, would be to get a baseline idea of how much you're actually eating right now and getting an idea of how much uh, weight you've gained or even lost or have maintained over the last month or two months or three months. And that can give you a good idea on, on you know where you're sitting now and then what you need to do to get yourself into a deficit when you eventually cut your calories. But tracking something. And again, like I'm an advocate for tracking. You could also uh, tracking just like with a food app, my fitness pal chronometer, building awareness around how much you're eating, what you're eating, you know, getting a, a, a good picture of what it looks like when you're eating away from home versus what you, you know, how many calories and how many protein you get when you make meals at home and how many calories you're getting from alcohol in per week. And um, we'll talk about fiber in a second, but just like actually seeing what you're doing. If you've never tracked food before and, and you go in the mindset first of like, I'm curious of what I'm doing and what what's happening instead of tracking calories only to hit a number and you've never tracked calories before, like that's usually a recipe for disaster for most people. Um, but getting an idea of where your baseline is now could be a really good starting point. The next thing would be, we alluded to it already, but every time you have a meal, every time you have a snack, you getting 20 to 30 or more grams of protein in that serving, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, protein shake, smoothie, whatever it is, you getting, you getting 30 grams of protein at those, you know, at those feedings is going to be an incredible just starting point and something that you will continue to do once you cut calories, okay? The protein is likely going to stay the same. So starting in, in getting in a habit and a routine and getting your grocery list for the week and, and having food prepped at home and knowing, you know, what you're ordering out at restaurants and what you're looking for, like all of those things are going to be massively important as you go into a fat loss phase. And just getting into a routine of that before you cut calories could be a, an amazing idea for most people. The next thing I would say is, again, getting in steps. Like for some people, again, it becomes um, it become you become aware of it, and then you can act on it, right? But some people have no idea how many steps they're eating throughout the course or um, they're getting throughout the course of the day. And man, if you're somebody sitting here and you're getting forty five hundred steps a day, like you know, you need to double that. You know, if we're hitting that seven, eight, nine thousand step range. And that could be really hard. That could be a tough starting point. So for you, it'd be like, hey, maybe we add 2,000 steps to the baseline we're already at. If you're sitting here averaging 5,000 steps per day and you can get to seven or 7,500 by the end of the week um, on average over the next couple weeks before you go into your cut, like that could be a really good starting point. That could be um, just identifying times where you're able to get up and go outside for a walk. It's cold as fuck. I get it right now. And uh, not everybody has the ability to just go out when they want and have beautiful sunny weather and all these things. Some people can. I'm jealous of you 
that's you. But, you know, it might take, you know, going and uh, pacing when you're taking phone calls or something at work. It might be you getting a standing desk, even though it's not always the same, but like, hey, maybe you're standing more throughout the course of the day uh, instead of sitting for eight hours straight. Um, you're likely going to get more steps over the course of the day doing that. Could be taking your dog for an extra walk. It could be you going on longer walks when you do get to go on walks. It could be if you're not able to do things during the week, you go on a longer hike or walk or whatever it is um, uh, during the weekends when you have more time to get more steps in. And instead of doing a 20-minute walk, you're doing an hour and 20-minute walk. Uh, it could be simple things like parking farther away at your work or at the grocery store or doing more laps around the grocery store. It could be you taking the stairs. Like there's a lot of different habits that you could do to just increase your steps by 1,000 to 2,000 a day. doesn't have to be crazy, but I, I'd love for somebody to look at what their steps are now and add 2,000 or 3,000 to that instead of going from you know 4,000 up to 10,000 a day because chances are you're probably not going to, even if you are able to do that, it's probably going to be a stretch and difficult for you to do that and maintain that long term for a lot of people. So I'd rather have you just meet somewhere in the middle and then you can increase from there once you've built that into your normal routine. The last thing, man, there's a lot of things here, but uh, the other thing that I would say is uh, it kind of goes along with tracking. Again, if you're not tracking food in an app, I'm not saying you have to do that. It can help for sure. Um, but man, most people have no idea how many grams of fiber they are eating throughout the course of the day. Like if I pulled somebody off the street randomly and was like, hey, can you tell me what it would take to get to 28 grams of fiber per day, which is even a little bit lower than, you know, than what some people should be eating or 30 or 35 grams of fiber. Most people have no fucking idea what that would look like or what portion sizes it would take to get there. And that's for me where I would recommend somebody, if you're tracking, if you're choosing to do that, you could also just weigh, uh, uh, you know, mentally look at how big is my portion size? Am I getting a cup? Am I getting a whole container? Um, am I getting three, four, five at least servings of fruits and vegetables throughout the course of the day or grains? Like fiber can come in a lot of different forms, but tracking it and thinking about it could be really important. One, because again, it's good for good digestion and poops, all stuff that we appreciate and need. It's good for our gut bacteria. Great. It's good for our cholesterol and our heart. But when you, when we're talking about like a fat loss phase here, it is so important from a satiety perspective for you to have enough fiber so you can mitigate and manage the hunger that you will experience um, the, the further you get into your fat loss phase, okay? And you having 30 grams of fiber, 35 grams of fiber for if you're a man from the get-go in your fat loss phase and you're getting, you know, 160 grams of protein per day, you're going to feel better, which is going to improve your adherence. It's going to make your workouts good. It's going to maybe decrease your cravings a little bit, at least in the beginning. You're not going to get diet fatigue after the first week, but fiber is going to be such an important nutrient. Also, if we look at like a micronutrient standpoint, like you getting a ton of colors and a different variety of fruits and vegetables, fuck, even if you eat the same rotation of four or five things throughout the course of the week, I'm happy with that because that's also other nutrients and all those colors that you're eating. Like those are all nutrients that you are getting from food that are also going to be important for, you know, your body to feel decently and carry out its functions at maybe a normal capacity in the beginning um, compared to you just slashing calories and, and, you know, just eating whatever you want to a calorie range and then hoping that you're just going to lose fat that way. Like the results you're going to get are going to be very different than if you dial, dial in this list and, and get to a place where, you know, all you need to do is just cut your calories from 
2200 calories to 1700 and that's your starting point but you keep everything else in check so that lifting two to three times a week getting some workouts in all things that i would do as like a pre fat loss checklist almost that you could you know take with you into your cut you could work on that here to finish the year maybe you delay your cut going into mid january and you spend three or four weeks really dialing in and 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 getting comfortable doing all these things i promise you it's going to be worth the time effort and it just investment that you put into that you're going to get better results your um your fat loss phase might be quicker right because you're able to get in and get out instead of thinking you want to lose weight for three months but only doing what it takes half the time for it which a lot of people do um, and then being pissed off with your results like that's how i would set that up and that's what i would encourage you to do as well okay Oh man, I thought I'd be uh, quicker, but this is something I got to get out of my head with, with this. I have a couple more questions. I'm going to try and answer them both, but um, yeah, just a lot of good stuff going over today. Next question, any recommendations for healthier fast food options when I'm running around town during the week? <sighs> yes, yes. There's there's things that I want people to think about when they're searching for a different lunch spot. And obviously this is going to be case you know, case to case, person to person, city to city, like just what you have access to is going to be very different for a lot of people. Um, I would say in general, there's some basic stuff that you can keep in mind that you will be taking with you into wherever you get your meals, wherever you're planning out your, you know, meals for the week. If you know you're going to be eating on the go, there's always principles that I want people to lean back on that are important. But again, what places you have access to where you're, you know, able to choose from is going to be limited or maybe different from person to person, but it's not rocket science here. It's nothing you've never heard me say before, but I really want people to go to a place where they can get a protein source and um, preferably a protein source that's not deep fried or that it's super fatty cut of me, or you're getting like a, a burger um, that's like an 80, 20 patty and they're adding a bunch of cheese and whatever else to that and sauces, right? want you to think about where can I get some protein sources that maybe you're grilled or, um, you know, blackened or, um, not cooked in a fuck ton of oil or breaded. And even if you do go to places that do that, like asking or seeing if there's stuff on the menu that isn't prepared that way is something that I want you to think about. Um, that in addition to getting any types of plants or fiber sources. Okay. And just building your meal or building kind of your lunch around that. Things that come to mind for me are things like Chick-fil-A. It's a great option. I mean, they have all their traditional, you know, original chicken sandwich and tenders and nuggets and all that shit. But they've also had have a whole grilled menu and they have beautiful salads and, you know, you can get dressings and things that are lower calorie, higher calorie, depending on what you need. Um, um, there's a lot of different things that you can combine with those meals too. Like instead of getting a big fries or whatever, you could get a... Uh, a small side salad on the side or a cup of fruit instead. Um, the flexibility that you have at a place like Chick-fil-A is, is better than you going to like McDonald's or something like that, right? Or Popeye's. Um, Chipotle or other fast casual restaurants are always something that come to mind for me. I know when I say that people are like, oh yeah, I love Chipotle or people like fuck Chipotle. <laughs> I feel like there's not a lot of people in between on that. Um, it doesn't have to be Chipotle. Like there's places like uh, Qdoba or Cafe Rio, uh, all these other kind of, um, you know, Mexican food style, fast, casual restaurants that you can create a bowl or you can create a salad. Um, you can make a burrito if you want, but like 
you know, usually doing the things where you can pick like, hey, I'll do double the chicken here or I'll have the black beans and instead of the queso, uh, I'm just going to get the grilled veggies and I'll do a couple salsas instead. Like things where you have a little bit more flexibility and you have control over what you can order, I think is great. I'd also say honorable mention here is like sandwich shops. Like, you know, if you have a sandwich once or twice a week, like it could be, I don't know, it could be something that could work. Um, you could get a ton of veggies on them, depending where you're at. You can get a half, half sandwich with, you know, a bowl of chicken noodle soup or maybe a side salad. Like sometimes they offer lunch specials here and get like a chicken salad and you get a half a sandwich. Like that could be really cool too. Um, in terms of like actual fast food restaurants, the one that comes to mind for me is something like El Pollo Loco. El Pollo Loco is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's the only fast food spot that comes to me where I'm like, yeah, they use a grill. Like they have good chicken there. They have a bunch of fresh ingredients. You know, it's very different than the, uh, corners where you just see KFC, McDonald's, Taco Bell, Burger King. And you know, you just see all these like 10 fast food restaurants within like a mile stretch, right? El Pollo Loco, I'd say would be something that I think most people can find, you know, depending where they live, obviously, but most people, um, could have access to, could be another option to keep in mind of like, Hey, I'm, I know I'm going to be here and I got to be at my next meeting or wherever, uh, an hour later. And I can make a route to where I can hit up, you know, uh, Chipotle or I can hit up, uh, you know, El Pollo Loco, or I can get a sandwich or something and then eat and then go from there. I would just say mapping out your week for the week instead of just being like a victim to your environment too. A lot of people get to a place, they don't even think about what they're eating for the day. And then the first thing they see is what they get. They go get a huge breakfast sandwich or whatever from Starbucks. And then they stop and get whatever from Wendy's and then they're on to their next thing. And then before you know it, they're Uber eating at night because they get home and they're exhausted and they don't want to cook. And like, I, I would just say taking the time to plan out what, you know, your day is going to look like and what options you have and what you could make happen is another thing that we need to acknowledge in this conversation as well. Meal prep, you know, prepping things that are quick and simple and stuff that don't require any cooking that you can snack on and have throughout the course of the day, I think is a conversation for another day, but also another direction that my brain goes into as well. But yeah, I, uh, I hope that answers that question. Those are just some things that come to mind for me, at least if I'm, you know, in a pinch and looking for food on the go. Last question here. What are the effects of too much caffeine? Uh, I, I don't know if this question is asking in the context of short term, like, Hey, I had a ton of caffeine today. What are the side effects or long-term abuse of caffeine? I'm going to answer both. Um, quite simply, you will feel fucking crazy and anxious and you will feel your heart rate beating if you have too much caffeine in a day. Um, let's say someone sits sitting here today, they drink 500, you know, milligrams of caffeine. They have two bang energy drinks or, uh, whatever energy drinks are on the market, you know, a few Celsius in the span of a, a couple, you know, a couple hours, or you have a Celsius, then you have a pre-workout scoop before you go and lift. Like chances are you're going to feel kind of fucked up. Like, again, you're going to probably have a super fast heart rate that you could feel beating out of your chest. You could also feel dehydrated. You could have, you know, have the shakes, have a headache. There's a lot of short-term things that can happen when you drink too much caffeine. I find that that's not always feel, I think teenagers and kids like deal with that more than most. Uh, I see, unfortunately that happened a lot, but like adults don't really overdose on caffeine in a day, especially, um, essentially they, 
tend to build up their tolerance over time to the point where they become reliant on like 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. Um, and it doesn't give them all those nasty side effects. Maybe it did in the past, but they've just, you know, continued to desensitize their body to that caffeine. And then they get to a place where they're like, oh shit, I need 400 milligrams, 500 milligrams of caffeine per day, which is a fuck ton if you think about it. Um, that, that to me is the, the thing that I want to um, point out and the thing that would uh, really bother me the most for a lot of people. Drinking a ton of caffeine um, throughout the day, especially later in the day. I can't emphasize that enough, but over the long term, if you're having a lot of caffeine, you know, you wake up one or two cups of coffee in the morning, come noon, come, uh, <laughs> come 2 PM, 3 PM, you're reaching for another cup of coffee or a five hour energy drink, or you're taking a pre-workout before you go, uh, work out at 4 30 PM after work. Like those are the, the things that to me are really dangerous, particularly from a sleep standpoint. Um, sleep disruption is no joke. And the people who are sitting here telling themselves like, oh yeah, I can have a pre-workout or a cup of coffee or a five hour energy or whatever it is at 4.30 PM. And I can still go to sleep fine at the end of the night. Those are also the people who are not sleeping well and who also need coffee in the morning and who also need that afternoon coffee or that afternoon pick me up, that source of caffeine to keep to get them through the rest of the day, which unfortunately just keeps that cycle going. So I um I really, I really would emphasize the importance of not drinking caffeine after noon, right? Or at least 10 hours um before the end, uh, like before you go to bed. Caffeine has a half-life of like four to six hours, meaning when you drink caffeine. Four to six hours later, half of the amount of caffeine that you drink is still in your body. It's still in your blood. And that's a fuck ton, especially if you have like a 300 milligram caffeine pre-workout at 5 p.m. You know, at 10 p.m., you might have 100, 150 milligrams of caffeine still in your body circulating. And that's just, that's where the the dangers of uh, caffeine can come into play. And if you're somebody who's built up a tolerance and you need a ton of caffeine, like it might be time for you to like, embrace the uncomfortable and the suck that comes with cutting back on caffeine like like any other drug or any other thing like you know cutting back on it's going to suck at first but it's probably what you need most right now so think about that that would be the the response that I have to that question but yeah in general I think way too many people drink too much caffeine and uh it's just uh yeah it's doing more harm than than good that people realize okay Amazing. Cool. I'm going to end the podcast on that note. Thank you again for all the questions that were asked this week. I hope everyone has an amazing holiday season. If you listen to this before Christmas or New Year's, I appreciate you listening as always. And until next time, remember to train with a purpose, eat with intention and think with confidence as we work towards your nutrition and fitness goals. Uh, I appreciate you as always. Hope you have a good one. I'll see you on, on the next episode. Peace. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.